Well, let's start Amen. tonight with a question. The question is, what are some of the biggest problems in the world today? What do you think are some of the biggest problems in the world today? Carson? Human greed. Human mm -hmm. greed. Ooh. Okay. How, in what ways does that manifest itself? Uh, political leaders, greedy political leaders, greedy people causing problems which lead to financial issues and social issues and a lot of things. Okay, I would agree. Jeanette. Dying. Dying. Yeah, you know? it's a universal problem. Dying um, is a universal problem. Not good. 10 out of 10 people will die. No, that's a big one. Mm. Any, what are some of the other biggest problems you see or maybe people talk about in the world today? Biggest problems in the world. Or greed and dying are the only two. Pete. Sin. Sin. That is the core, the root of those problems. Think about just in your own life, on your own, for a moment. What are some of the biggest problems in your life? Just on your own, think about that for a second. Why is the world the way it is? Why can our lives sometimes feel so messy? Why is there evil in the world? Why are there arguments in our families, frustration in our hearts, and really just sad situations? Not only in our lives, but in the lives of others around us. The answer, like Peyton said, down to its core, is sin. Sin in others, sin in you, sin in me. Our problem is that we're sinful. Uh, how many people have heard the phrase, uh, that restored my faith in humanity? Have you ever heard anyone say that, use that? Uh, you'll see a video online or something in the top comments. Will be, faith in humanity restored, something like that. Uh, it's as though with all the bad going on in the world around us, with this one act of kindness that someone does, someone rescues a puppy from a stream or something, or does, does something nice for a, an old lady, helps her cross the street, uh, and you say, if there were just more people like that guy in this world, and all our problems would be solved. Uh, faith in humanity isn't actually something we want to have. We don't want have our faith in humanity restored because humanity is bad. Human, humans are sinful. The bad that we see going on around us, the bad we see in our own lives, in our own hearts, that just reveals that we are sinful. No little bit of goodness, no good deeds, no little act of uh, something kind you do that you can post on the internet will make up for the fact that we're sinful people. We need a lot more than just a little inspiration from a video online. But how did we get to this point? Why are we bad? Why is there sin in the world in the first place? Because uh, um, Eve and Adam disobeyed God's word and ate the apple, and um, that made us go further from God. And so now, and like now, there's like a barrier between us and God. Like, he sent Jesus down so that Jesus could, like, be a little path from us to God. Yeah, that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at Genesis 3 and the fall. A few weeks ago, we started walking through the whole Bible. 
We're going to go through the whole Bible, and we're looking at the fact that the Bible is one story about God's glory by redeeming the people through Christ. One story about God's glory by redeeming the people through Christ. Uh, when we looked at Genesis 1, we saw that God created the world. The creation we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 is a real historical event. It shows that God is sovereign over any, everything. It shows us that God is good. And it showed, we remember, if you remember, we saw that the same God who created the world is the God who, like Peyton said, redeems the world in Christ. That was two lessons ago. Last week, we talked specifically about the creation of humans, that we are creatures made in God's image. God made male and female in his image. So that we're made for fellowship with God. We were given a task to represent him on earth, kind of as his vice rulers, as his, uh, his ambassadors who would represent him on the planet. And the last aspect of being made in his image is that we were made male and female, and how good that was. After God made everything, man, woman, plants, the earth, time, space, everything, he declared it all very good. So we could say, Act 1, complete. Act 1 is complete. Uh, some people like to categorize Scripture almost as a play in four acts, you could say. We have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So tonight, we're already going to be looking at Act 2. We're only three chapters in the Bible, and we're already past Act 1. So tonight, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3 and our fall from our good standing with God to the state that we're in today. So when we look at, as we open to Genesis 3, we'll be looking at God's answer to those questions we were asking in the beginning. God's answer to how evil, sin, sadness, and suffering came into the world. So it's going to be the very first book of the Bible, the third chapter. The chapters are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the small numbers in your Bible. So it should be on uh, a very early page in the Bible. Uh, Keely, maybe you could help Colton and just flip to Genesis 3. Just like Genesis 1, just like in creation, this isn't a story that an ancient tribe made up to try and explain the world around them. This is God telling us what actually happened. So what happened? We're actually going to start, we're going to look at a few verses from chapter 2 just to set the stage. We looked at these verses last week, but we're going to set the stage. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We read that briefly last week as we were talking about creation of man and woman. But we need to revisit it to understand what's going on with that story that Peyton gave us a preview of. God made Adam, he made man for a purpose, to work and keep the garden. He made him to be in fellowship with God, in perfect fellowship with God. And part of being in fellowship with 
God, Adam's creator, means that Adam was to love and trust God. And that means he was to obey God's commandments. What God said was right and wrong. So he was to obey what God said was right and wrong, rather than what he thought might have been right or wrong. He wasn't to determine that for himself. To make this very clear of who gets to set the rules, God tells Adam not to eat the fruit from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think there's anything special about this tree. Its fruit isn't magical. It doesn't uh, make you super wise as soon as you take a bite. You don't go from being very simple to very wise. Uh, the tree is simply a test. Adam wasn't stupid before he ate the fruit. Uh, the tree just shows whether or not Adam will choose good or evil. And there's a strict punishment attached to breaking this one rule. Death. Does that seem strict to you? When you first hear that, that there's death, if you eat the tree, the fruit from this tree, there's death. What do you think? Does it seem strict that God would make the punishment so severe for eating the fruit from this tree? It does. Any other thoughts? I mean, it must be a really bad thing to do. Mm. Peyton? Um, is it like a test for them to see if they'll disobey? It is a test. Isn't yeah. it like because if you if you disobey God, then that is sin. Like, that is sin. And then, like, sin can't be in the presence of God, so, like, yeah, they would die. So I feel like he's also just, like, laying it out straight to them, like, you're gonna die if you eat this. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. There's nothing immoral about eating the fruit from a tree. Kind of like if your parents ever told you, a rule we all probably have, was don't go in the street when we were growing up. You might still have that rule. It's probably, hopefully, still ingrained in you to at least be cautious about going in the street. Come home when the street lights come on. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with standing in the street. There's nothing immoral about standing in the street. But it's dangerous to stand in the street. So your parents warn you against it. What God's doing here is exactly what Janae said. He's warning you that disobedience, cutting yourself off from God, from the very source of life, to turn away from him is death. And so there's a strict punishment attached to this one rule. Well, do Adam and Eve listen to God and eat the tree? Let's keep reading to find out. Do they obey or disobey God? So let's turn to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve are minding their own business in the garden, this paradise that God's created and given to them, where they're living in perfect fellowship with him, and then this serpent slithers up to them. Who is this serpent? The serpent is Satan. Uh, how do we know that? Revelation 20 gives us a hint. All the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation 20, verse 2 says, He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan. So that helps us understand that this is the devil, Satan, who has put on this snake's flesh, almost possessed him, and gone up to Eve. Now why does he choose Eve? He goes up to Eve, chooses to, to tempt her, not because she's more stupid or more gullible than Adam, but probably because God gave the command not to eat directly to Adam. He gave Adam the responsibility to protect and guard the garden, which included his wife. But he's nowhere to be found at this point in the story. So God creates one way. He creates Adam, gives him a charge, and then creates a wife for Adam. Satan goes the other way. He turns the creation order on its head. He chooses to work in the opposite direction. So the question of why Eve is a question of order and responsibility, not ability. Satan was crafty and he chose to flip creation order on its head. Now notice how Satan tempts Eve and how she responds. Satan gets her to question God's word. Actually, say, did he actually say what I think he said? Then he twists God's word. Did he actually say you may not eat of any tree? So that's not even close to what God has said. He's already planting seeds of doubt in Eve's head that God, who's given Adam and Eve everything in the garden except one tree, he's planting seeds that God is stingy. He wants her to kind of think like a kid throwing a temper tantrum. When mom says no, how many of you have said, you won't let me do anything? That's a huge exaggeration. But that's kind of what he's getting Eve to think like in this situation. Eve corrects Satan, but even she twists God's word. What does she add to God's word? What do you notice in Chapter 3, that she adds to God's word. Verse 3. Um, nor touch it. Yeah, God doesn't say not to touch it. So Eve's already starting to mess up God's word on her own. Then Satan gets more bold and just flat out tells her that God's lied to her. God said that the punishment is death. Satan says, you won't surely die. In fact, you'll be like God. So Satan has just flat out lied to her. He's 
contradicted God. Now, Eve has been given a choice. She can believe God's word, or she can believe Satan. So what is Eve's, what is the first sin of humanity? Unbelief. She had a choice. She could say to herself, I can take God at his word, I can submit to what he said, or I can compare what he's said to what this snake's telling me, and I can decide for myself. Even in thinking that, before she even makes a decision, she's raised herself up above God. She's judging what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. She's elevated herself above God as his judge. Eve didn't believe God's word. She lifted herself up as judge over God's word. And she disobeys God's word. And this is how we all sin. Every one of us. Starts by, we don't believe God's word. Then our imaginations start to go wild. We tell ourselves, this will be great. This is going to work out really well for me. Then we want whatever it is we want. More and more until we end up acting on our sinful desires. So the pattern of sin that Eve shows us here is the same pattern that goes in on in all of our hearts and minds. So here's an example. God says, don't steal. It's a very simple, plain commandment. Everyone understands it. Don't take what isn't yours. Then we get put in a situation where we think that it would be better if we did have something that wasn't ours. I don't know about you, but I've definitely been in those situations. I've had those thoughts. It would be really nice to have that and not have to work for it. We're already thinking wrongly if we think we'd be better off with something that God hasn't given us. We're thinking wrongly as soon as we think we'd be better off by breaking God's law. But then desire builds up and builds up in ourselves, and we act on it. We take it. We break God's law. We steal. Eve took the fruit and she ate. Then Adam did the same. They broke the rule that God gave them. They sinned. What is sin? We're going through the New City Catechism. Thankfully, there's a question and an answer to that. Question and answer 16 in the New City Catechism. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. The definition that that's giving us of sin is that at its core, it's a rejection of God. At its core, it's a rejection of God. And when we reject God, we break his law that he's given us. What happens when we do that? What happens when we sin? Well, let's see what happens to Adam and Eve. Picking back up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I 
heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you, you were, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So their first response, Adam and Eve, is to try and cover themselves. They feel ashamed and try and cover themselves with leaves. They go and hide from God. Then they try and blame everyone but themselves. This is because they feel ashamed of themselves. Their consciences are going off like a fire alarm. Have you ever just tried to sit in a school classroom while a fire alarm is going off? I used to live in a, uh, a church building, actually. I didn't go to that church. They let me live in their basement for free. It was a nice setup. Uh, but sometimes they would have fire drills. They would tell me it was a fire drill. And I would have to sit there while the fire alarm was going off. You can't be comfortable sitting there. It's loud. It's annoying. You can't be at ease, at rest, when your conscience is going off. Adam and Eve are ashamed what they've done, and they try and hide from the one they've sinned against. But it's a foolish thing to try and hide from the omnipotent, omnipresent God. So he confronts them. And when he does that, they do what we all tend to do. They point fingers. God looks at Adam first, the one who he's given responsibility to, to guard and protect the garden. And Adam blames God uh, he blames Eve. He says, it was a woman. It was the one you gave me. Maybe if you gave me a better wife, this wouldn't have happened. Then God turns to Eve, and Eve points to the snake. If the snake didn't tempt me, but maybe if Adam didn't let him come up to me, if you didn't create this snake, this wouldn't have happened. We always try and shift blame away from ourselves. When we do, every time we do that, we're ultimately blaming God. If you didn't put me in this situation, God, I wouldn't have sinned. If you gave me a better family, if you protected me from that bully, if you didn't make me this way, every time we shift blame, we accuse God. But the Bible in James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We can't pass the blame onto God. We have to take it on ourselves. God promised there would be consequences for eating from this tree. So let's read what they are as he curses serpent, woman, and man. Let's pick back up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. 
In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. I think he's saying that sarcastically. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that came every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a lot that we could say about these curses. We could talk about them for hours on end. But see this. Have this one takeaway from these curses. The very things that man and woman were created for, that should have brought them joy, now bring pain and are cursed. The woman was made to enjoy perfect fellowship with her husband and to nurture life. Marriage will now be a struggle. Childbirth will now be painful. The man was made to work the ground. Now the ground's going to fight back against him. And his work's going to be miserable his whole life. It won't be fulfilling and joyful. And both of them die. God's original promise is fulfilled. They're put away from the intimate presence of God. They're put away from the close fellowship they had with him. They're expelled from the garden and they die spiritually. And one day their bodies are going to catch up to them. And they'll die physically too. Death has entered the world. Ephesians 2 makes this clear. It tells us we're all born spiritually dead. Without qualification, Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We hear from Paul. We see it in ourselves. And we see in the chapters right after Genesis 3 that sin has passed on to all of Adam's natural descendants. It's an inheritance that none of us asked for, but all of us get. Right away in Genesis 4 through 11, we see stories of Cain killing Abel. Eventually, God looks at all the earth, and he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we see in the world around us, and we see even in our own lives, that not much has changed. Sin's everywhere. It ruins lives. It separates us from God. We're born sinners. It affects what we think, what we say, what we do. And it puts us all under the sentence of death. So that's it. That's the end of the story. No. It's not. <laughs> we all know it's not. And praise God that it's not. So even here, we get hints of God's mercy. We get 
clear evidence that God is uh, going to show grace to these people. He already does. He, uh, he makes promises to them. God is just and he punishes sin. But he's also a God of mercy. Look at verse 15. Look how merciful God is after his own creation has rebelled against him. As he's cursing, as he's handing down these curses to the snake, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's promising a struggle that's going to go on for all of human history. God promised that one of the woman's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Sin's not going to win in the end. That's what the rest of the Bible is about. It's explaining and expanding and showing how God gets victory over sin. About how God fulfills this promise. You could say the whole Bible is God fulfilling this promise that we just read. And he does that in Christ. We have to wait thousands of years from this promise until the coming of Christ. But here we have the first promise of the gospel. The first promise that God will, through Jesus, overcome sin and Satan. How does he do that? We see also in this verse, the serpent strikes his heel. The son is dealt a painful blow. He dies on the cross. But through his death and his resurrection, the Bible says that he conquers sin, death, and Satan. The offspring of the woman crushes the serpent's head. Jesus is the only man without sin. He is the only man who did not deserve to die. But he takes the punishment of God's just wrath, the punishment of death, the just punishment that sin deserves, that we all deserve. He took that punishment so that everyone who trusts in him Fellowship with God restored, have their punishment for sin fully paid for, fully forgiven. So all penalties, all death, all punishment is all gone for those who trust in Christ for their salvation. Everyone who does that is covered. Covered in someone else's righteousness. Just like the death of an animal provides for the skins that cover Adam and Eve, Christ's death covers all those who trust in him. You see how serious sin is? It takes death to atone for it. The wages of sin is death. Death is the punishment. And it takes the death of God's son to forgive. So there's really one big takeaway this evening from this passage. Believe God's Believe what the Bible says about God. That he's a creator, that he's good, that he rules over creation, and that he's given us good rules to live by. Believe what the Bible says about you. That you're made in God's image. You have value. You have worth because of that. But you've sinned against God. Believe that you were made for fellowship with God. That you've rebelled against him. Believe that your biggest problems aren't outside you. Your biggest problems aren't your circumstances. It's not even that evil's been done to you. Many of us have had great evil done to us. But the Bible says that's not our biggest problem. 
our biggest problem is the evil in our hearts. Jesus says that everyone who commits sin is slave to sin. Our biggest problem is that we're not good by nature. We're not even truly free. We're all slaves to sin. And lastly, believe what the Bible says about the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That he died in the place of sinners. And that turning from your sin, trusting him alone, is the only way to have your sins forgiven. To be given a new heart, new desires. Believe that that's truly good news. And that good news is offered to every one of us here. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. That you have not left humanity on our own to do the impossible, to deal with our own sin. That you've dealt with it definitively in Christ on the cross. Help us to see that. Help us to trust in that work that's been done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we will now split up into small groups.